Good morning. We want to welcome back some snowbirds from Florida. It's always good when they fly in, I guess you could say. How many of you were here for the uh, talent night Friday night? Good number. We had some great talent here at the church. We had somebody doing the worm across the stage, and the Lindy Hop was performed. Um, great music and some artwork. So it's just a really... So if, you, if that's not a part of your... We've kind of made it an annual deal here at West Hills. And part of it is just to show up and encourage kids. We love to encourage kids who get the courage to come up here in front of a crowd of people and play an instrument or sing a song or do a, do a jig or whatever. So if that's not a part of your regular annual routine, make sure that that you add that, because it really was a fun evening for all of us. We're going to be in 1 Peter 4 in just a minute. A couple of passages out of 1 Peter 4. We are making our way through Peter's first epistle, and um, I think the Lord's using it in our lives to equip us in a variety of ways, and I trust that that'll be the case again this morning. How many of you have traveled to other parts of the world? Show of hands. Yeah, I would guess in an area where we, such as where we live, probably a lot of folks do a fair amount of traveling. Some of, you have, some of you traveled to really remote areas that are really significantly different than the good old USA. Yeah, several, quite a few. Yeah. Um, a number of years ago, I spent two weeks in the Philippines. I visited one extremely remote island Villages where you would wake up in the morning to breakfast being cooked over an open fire, and it's not because we were camping. It's because that's their daily routine to cook all of their meals over open fires. Um, No electricity, no cell phones, no flat screen TVs, no cars. Very, very, very different. More recently, several years ago, I spent 10 days in Turkey where we had all the amenities of life. You did not wake up to the smell of a wood-burning fire. You woke up to the sound of competing calls to prayer, echoing from the minarets of the mosques. Um, Very, very different world, Turkey, compared to West County. So you go to a different part of the world. The language is different. The customs are different. Food tastes different. They dress differently. Their social structure isn't what you're used to. They drive on the wrong side of the road, If they drive cars at all, they don't observe the same holidays that we celebrate. They don't love baseball. They haven't the foggiest idea what Twitter is. The list could go on and on and on, right? It's just all so very different. When a person becomes a Christian, though most of us don't realize it at the time, we have entered into a completely other world from what we have been used to. I mean, from what you find in Scripture, the change in going from being an unbeliever to being a follower and disciple of Jesus is much more radical than were you to move to some remote part of the world and adapt to their way of life. In fact, the Bible says that Christians are aliens and strangers. Uh, Peter says we are Sojourners and exiles, travelers in a place that's not our home. Now, in order to stress the contrast, it says in Ephesians 2, of those of you who are here this morning who are followers of Christ, you used to follow the course of this world. You used to travel the same roads that everybody else is traveling, and now you're going in the opposite direction. It's like trying to walk up the ramp at Bush Stadium after a Cardinals game when everyone else is exiting the ramp. Ephesians 2 says that before you were unknowingly following the prince of the power of the air. In other words, you were unwittingly following the devil. Now you're following Christ. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. This is radical stuff. Massive change. You used to walk in darkness. Now, by God's grace, you've come into the light. You used to have little or no interest in reading this book. Now, 
I hope it's a vital part of your life. Your ideas of what's really, really important in life versus what's not important are being all shuffled around. Your ideas of what it means to know God, your concept of sin, maybe you didn't even used to have a concept of sin at all. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of holiness now actually dwells, lives in you. That's a pretty radical concept. And so the list goes on and on and on and on. There are so many elements of newness, of radical change that come with being a Christian. And yet, I wonder if the reality for a lot of us is that we often view and treat the Christian life as not much more than an accessories package, just sort of some add-ons, some things to improve our lives a little bit, to tweak ourselves just a shade or two. It's kind of like getting, you know, those whitening strips for your teeth. Well, how white do you really want them, you know? And so you tweak, you tweak a little bit. You, you change the shade just a little bit from being an, an unbeliever to being a believer. And so we view it more as an improvement in our lives versus, really, friends, an extreme makeover of our lives. Top to bottom, inside and out. <clears throat> this morning, Jesse was listening to music down in his bedroom <clears throat> while I was going over my notes. And sometimes he'll come out and tell us what it is that he's listening to. And he came out and he said, hey, Dad, put your hand in the hand. And I said, in the hand of the man who stills the waters. And he said, yep. And I said, in the hand of the man who calmed the seas. Yeah. Of the man from Galilee. And I said, Jesse, that's Jesus, right? And he says, yep. And he said, and you've done that. I said, and you've done that, haven't you? You've trusted in Jesus he said, yep, and heart and soul. I said, Jesse, that's right, hand, heart, and soul. You see, when you come to Christ, it's a radical change, inside and out. The Christian life, being a faithful follower of Jesus, putting your hand in his hand, loving him with all your heart and all your soul, it's a radical deal much more so than we often realize. And so this morning, as we continue to go through 1 Peter, and one of the things that stands out to me in 1 Peter, it's just like the other epistles, it's a call to radical living, radical thinking, radical reacting. And those are the elements we're going to be looking at this morning in 1 Peter. I've combined two sections from chapter 4 this morning, verses 1 through 6, and then verses 12 through 19, next week we'll come back to the middle, the middle verses. So please stand as you're able for the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, those who've died, That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. And down to verse 12, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, You're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. And yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? 
And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So, Lord, again, we thank you for your word. We trust it. We ask the Spirit of God to be our instructor, the one who would convict us, the one who would encourage us, the one who would strengthen us in our inner man, that we might love you more, know you better, and live for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I'm going to try to break it down fairly simply this morning into some things that Peter tells us about what the Christian life involves. And he starts out by telling us that it involves a, a whole new way of thinking, a brand new way of thinking. It says in verse 1, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So first and foremost, there's this whole new mental processing for the believer. Peter says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So it doesn't start with doing. It starts with thinking. And here, Peter's especially concerned with their way of thinking when it comes to suffering. And especially suffering that comes your way as a result of your faith in Jesus. I mentioned last week that 1 Peter talks more about suffering than any other book in the New Testament. Eighteen times the word suffer or forms of the word suffer are found in this small epistle. And so it's a lot about suffering. And this may not seem nearly as relevant for us as it would be, say, for those who live with varying degrees of persecution on a pretty much a daily basis. For example, North Korea. If you live in North Korea, where complete allegiance is to the state and to Kim Jong-un in particular, and as a result, your neighbors, your co-workers, even family members are highly watchful, and they are responsible to report any suspicious religious activity to the authorities. It'd be hard to live there as a Christian, and there aren't that many Christians there. Or Afghanistan, an Islamic, Islamic state by constitution, government officials, other, relig- other religious leaders, religious officials, citizens, they're hostile toward adherents of any other religion other than Islam. Christians in Afghanistan are unable to express their faith even in private. They can experience loss of property, businesses, beatings, even death, and sometimes death at the hands of their own family members. And you've got similar persecution in places like Somalia. 11 million people in Somalia, estimated in the hundreds in terms of believers. Sudan, Pakistan, Libya, Iraq, Yemen, other countries, the red ones, the dark orangish red ones, those are the, the worst. And so to read passages like First Peter, where he writes here about suffering, may initially seem much more applicable to those who are really suffering. And that may be true, for sure. In fact, I sometimes wonder if American Christians wouldn't be a whole lot better off if we faced more persecution, if we had to really contend for our faith. It just seems like we've got it awfully, awfully easy. But that doesn't mean that you don't need to arm yourself with a whole new way of thinking when any kind of suffering comes your way because of your faith. Because there are and there will be situations in your life where your faith in Jesus creates unrest with family members, with co-workers, where being faithful and obedient to Christ could actually cause you to have to quit your job because of what the company is doing or what it represents, or where you feel left out at school or at work because others know that you are religious. I've talked with some of our grad students, Wash U in particular, who have mentioned the pressures that they sometimes feel due to antagonism to Christianity on the university campus. If you are a middle school or high school student who is trying to faithfully follow Jesus, there will be times 
when you feel ostracized or ridiculed because of what you believe and your refusal to participate in certain activities with some of your friends. And so you see, whether you live in America or Afghanistan, North Korea or northern Kansas, it doesn't matter where you live. If you're seeking to be a faithful follower of Jesus, and I stress faithful follower of Jesus, then Peter is right. You need to arm yourself with the same way of thinking. You say, well, what is that way of thinking? It's the way of thinking that was held by Jesus. Christ suffered in the flesh, he says. And so you need to be willing to suffer. A way of thinking that involves being willing to suffer. You see, Christ's way of thinking was set. His mind was set. Not set as in jello that sets up but is still really jiggly. No, set as in cement that becomes rock hard, as in your sidewalk. Christ's way of thinking was set in the concrete of a willingness to suffer, a willingness to die. See, Jesus saw suffering as an integral part of his vocation, key to his calling by the Father. Jesus did not come to throw a party. He will come a second time, and then there will be a party. The first time he came to suffer. And he made sure that his disciples understood that all the way through, especially in the latter half of his ministry. He wanted them to understand just how integral suffering would be to his ministry. Matthew 16. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. Luke 17. First he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Luke 22. He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Luke 24, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then from last week, chapter 3, 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So suffering is central to the gospel. You can't have a gospel without suffering. You can't have good news. Christ suffered and died for your sins. He took your place, the righteous for the unrighteous. So Peter says, those who are followers of Jesus must arm themselves, must must prepare themselves with a mind that is willing to suffer. If necessary, you are willing to suffer. If it's necessary for you to suffer as a high school student who follows Jesus, you will. If it's necessary for you to be maligned at work, You're okay with that. Willing to suffer. Now he makes an interesting, excuse me, Uh, Peter says we must arm ourselves. John Piper writes this. I don't want to miss this. A religion that centers on a crucified God-man is a scary religion for its members. Christians cannot simply move past the gritty, violent mess of the cross For the glory of the resurrection. Peter drags our eyes back to the cross. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Not only does Peter urge Christians to remember the cross, but to use the cross as a model for their life. He says, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. What does that mean? And you're sitting here saying, well, I think I sinned last week. You see, Christ's suffering culminated in his crucifixion. In fact, his suffering is virtually synonymous with crucifixion. And so think about it for a minute. When someone physically dies, their struggle with sin is what? Over. You'll no longer have to contend with sin's power after you take your last breath. 
you won't, you won't be dealing with sin in any of its forms. And so what about while we're still living in this body, in the flesh? So I think what Peter is saying here is the same as what Paul wrote to the Romans and the Galatians, Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin, continue living in sin, that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? For we have been united with him in a death like his. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Or Galatians 2. I have been crucified with Christ. This is, this is the way Paul thought of his This is the way he viewed himself. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. It's not the old me that's still living in this body. But Christ who now lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God. Who loved me and died for me. So, I put all of that together and think that being willing to suffer is being willing to die, to be crucified with Christ, willing to die to sin's dominion in my life, willing to see myself as dead to sin's continuing control. I will not listen to its voice because I am dead to its voice. I will not follow its appeal because I am dead to its appeal. I begin to see myself daily as crucified with Christ. And therefore, the way I respond to sin is very different than were I fully alive to sin. Does that make sense? You say, well, then, Gary, does that mean that you'll cease, you cease from all sinning? No, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't say that. John says, if we, if we say we have no sin, we're just simply kidding ourselves. No, we confess our sins. That's why we... That's why we have a time of confession. We confess our sins because God's faithful to forgive us. So that's not what it means. No, it means that your way of thinking is such that you see yourself as being crucified with Christ. And that you approach life, you will approach Monday morning with the perspective of being unresponsive to sin's lure. willing to suffer, willing to be crucified, willing to die. And then the other related part of the same way of thinking that Jesus had involves willing the will of God. You're actually willing the will of God. And so it's a way of thinking that is, is increasingly preoccupied with knowing and doing the will of God. Peter writes in verse 2, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. To live the rest of your life for the will of God. And so a major part of your new mental construct in Christ is that your thinking is to be increasingly governed not by those things that used to drive and motivate you before knowing Christ, but now your way of thinking is governed by the will of God. And again, our example is Jesus. He told his disciples, John 5, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I seek not my own will, but the will of him, the will of the Father. And so Jesus came to do the will of the Father. Jesus had several com really hard conversations with the scribes and the Pharisees who rejected him, okay? I mean, they were they were totally convinced that they were the ones who knew the will of God and were doing the will of God. And Jesus told them, if God were your father, you would love me because that'd be the father's will. For I came from God and I'm here. Can you imagine him saying this? No, no, no. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Whew. 
In other words, they were willing the will of the devil, whereas Jesus was willing the will of the Father. And even to the bitter end of his life, remember what he said in the garden? Remember his prayer in the garden of Gethsemane? He withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That's what governed his life. It was, it was doing the will of the Father is what governed his life. It's what controlled him. It's what compelled him to set his eyes to Jerusalem, set his face to Jerusalem. And so how did Jesus teach us to pray? Your kingdom come, what? Your will be done on earth, in our lives, this week, in my home, in my finances, in my parenting, all those things that we listed, your will be done because I want to will your will. Friends, that's radical. That's a major, major change. It's not tweaking your life. That's turning your life upside down, inside and out. To will the will of God. You, you, you know the, the, the little prayer song, I guess. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. You are the potter. I am the clay. Mold me and make me after your will. You know, parents will sometimes talk about one of their kids being strong-willed. She is so strong-willed. We've had grandkids who are strong-willed. We've got one right now who is strong-willed. <clears throat> Judd was strong-willed when he was growing up, and my wife survived. <clears throat> he had to have his way, and he would try to convince you that his way was the right way. And he would come home from school wondering why in the world the teacher kept interrupting him. Kids are strong-willed. What about, what about adults being strong-willed? You see, it is good to have a strong will provided that is the will of God. Otherwise, if you're a strong-willed adult and that's not the will of God, boy, you'll just be messing up all the time. Paul said to the Romans, this shows that thinking and willing go hand in hand. Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed, how? By the renewal of your mind, thinking, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. See, thinking and willing go together. You cannot separate one from the other. And, and then you're asking, well then, Pastor Gary, how do you know the will of God? I'll just take you right here. <laughs> Don't try to discover the will of God in unrevealed areas until you have submitted yourself to the will of God as it has been revealed. Okay? You know, we, we often want to know the will of God as to whether or not we should take this job or buy this house or have another baby, or you know, all these things. Totally fine. But, 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 if you haven't started here and said, Lord, I submit to your will here, then you can trust him with all of the unrevealed areas of your life. You can trust him with those areas of your life if you've started out here. Then a new way of thinking brings about point number two in your outline, a new way of living. A new way of living. Verse 3, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. 
So he says, so as to live for the rest of the time. So as to live for the rest of your days. How many days have you lived? A lot. I mean, I crunched the numbers for me. 23,831 days I've lived in this body. But the other question, how many days do you have left to live in this body? You don't know, do you? You don't know. I mean, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be, Psalm 139. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom, Psalm 90. You don't know how many more days you got. And Peter just simply says, so as to live for the rest of the time, so as to live for the rest of your days, even even though you don't know how many there are, to live for the rest of your days, no longer for human passions. <clears throat> no longer for passionate longings. In the context of 1 Peter, it means no longer for sinful desires. No longer driven and controlled by sinful desires. That's the way we used to live. That's the way I used to live, Ephesians 2. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, carrying out the desires of the mind. And so the passions of the flesh, the desires of the body, the desires of the mind, the list of activities that Peter includes, sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. I think those are simply meant to be representative because we know from other passages there's a whole lot more you could add to the list. Galatians 5, for example. The Bible says in 1 John 2, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh... The desires of the eyes and the pride of life or pride of possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And so you break those down, the desires of the flesh, uh, fleshly lusts, inordinate desires, sinful desires. It means to be hot after something. You are hot after something. Whether it's after, you're, you're, you're lusting after a woman, if you're a man, a man, if you're a woman, Unfortunately, in our day and age, it can be the same. You're lusting for a position. You're lusting for an object. You're lusting for... You basically are living a life dominated by the senses. It's a life that's dominated by the senses. Food, sex, drink, drugs, unrestrained sensual indulgence, desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, things you see with your eyes. Remember, Jesus said that the eye is the lamp of the body. And so the desires of the eyes means someone who is captivated by what they see and also captivated by what they know others see that they have. I'm, 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 I'm driven and controlled by what I know you see that I have or you see my position, you see my popularity, you see my success. Pride of life, the desire for power, the desire for recognition, applause, status, whatever makes you feel important. Now, back to Peter. Peter says, the time that's past suffices. The time that's past is enough. Don't feel compelled to stay there any longer. It's time to move out of there. It's time to find a new neighborhood to live in, a new place to live. A different part of town, the time that's passed suffices for doing those things and pursuing the same, <coughs> the same pursuits <coughs> of those who don't know Jesus. <clears throat> you see, as believers, we need to understand the passions of the flesh are contrary to the brand new nature that you've received in Christ. Galatians 5, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other, and yet they're still active in your life. Now, friends, understand, it is not that God does not want for you to have desires. You know that. You know that, but you just need to be reminded. He created you in such a way that you are capable of having tremendously strong desires and passions. And that's a good thing. He just wants for you and me to have the very best desires. 
And then for them to be of a strength that brings joy to your life and to the lives of others. I've shared this quote from C.S. Lewis before because it is so true. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And then thirdly, Peter tells us there's a whole new way of reacting. A whole new way to react when things happen in our lives. I'll break it down into three. I think, I think we should be undeterred. Undeterred. He says in verse 4, With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them. When you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. In other words, with respect to this new way of living that you're trying to pursue because of your faith in Jesus, you love Jesus, you're trying to pursue a different way to live, a different way to think. You're making decisions, you're reshuffling priorities. Some changes are happening in your life because of Christ. With respect to this, they, some of your unbelieving family members, some of your friends, some of your acquaintances, work associates, team members, high school buddies, with respect to this, they are surprised. They're baffled. They're confused. There's some consternation. What happened to her? Oh, didn't you hear? She got religion. She loves Jesus. They're surprised when you do not join them. You used to engage in activities that you now find to be either wrong or inappropriate or unattractive. You used to go places. You used to laugh at certain jokes. You used to tell those jokes. You used to see nothing wrong with taking advantage of someone if it meant improving yourself in some way. You used to go with the crowd. And actually, the biggest issue of all of them is that you didn't used to love Jesus. And now the gospel has totally changed your life. You love him. And it's starting to show through. And so they malign you. Literally, it means to blaspheme. It means to slander or defame someone, to speak evil of someone. You see, when someone doesn't line up with your way of thinking or your way of living, the natural man tends to go fairly quickly to maligning your opponent in some fashion. We see this in the political realm and in the media all the time. I mean, I don't know that we have ever seen quite so many derogatory epithets thrown around so loosely as we do today on, from all sides. And it's all for the purpose of blaspheming those who are not with you. And Peter is saying here, this can be expected for those who seek to follow Jesus. You'll be maligned. You'll be blasphemed. You'll be slandered. You'll be spoken of. People will, pe people will talk behind your back. They'll talk about you. They may not talk to you. They'll talk about you. But in the bits of being maligned, your new way of reacting, your new way of reacting is not to give in. They're surprised when, they, when you don't join them, he says. They're surprised when you don't join them. Well, it's because you're undeterred in your commitment to Christ. You fixed your eyes on Jesus. It's like an athlete uh, running a race, looking to the prize, not distracted by other voices in the crowds, not distracted by things happening in the peripheral vision. You fixed your eyes on Jesus. You're undeterred. And then secondly, Peter says, you're unruffled. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. You're unruffled. 
when things happen that aren't really that enjoyable. He says, don't be surprised. Don't, don't let it come as a shock when these things happen to you. I mean, it's like being surprised that it's hot if you live in Phoenix. I can't believe how hot it is today. You mean like it was yesterday. Or that it's raining in Seattle. Seriously. You're surprised at that. Don't be surprised as though something strange were happening to you. It's not strange. Say, well, this is strange. This isn't supposed to happen to a Christian. 1 John 3.13, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. You remember what Jesus said to his disciples before he sent them out? Let me read it for you. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now just image, picture that in your mind for a minute. Okay. Pack of wolves, I'm sending you out as sheep. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. Again, we have to apply it to our culture, our day and age. You will have to stand before people and bear witness of me. Brother will deliver brother over to death. There will be family strife. The father, his child, children will rise against parents. Some of you may have that going on in your families right now. And have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. For a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher, and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? And Jesus said all of that so that his disciples would not be surprised. It isn't strange if you're maligned by those who reject Jesus. It isn't strange if you have relatives in your extended family who do not understand your position. The question is, can you be unruffled and loving at the same time? Can you be unruffled and loving at the same time? Paul told the Corinthians of the twofold reaction that Christians will experience from others. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. In other words, we are essential oils. Okay? There is an essential fragrance to the Christian life. And that fragrance will be loved by some and hated by others. Therefore, do not be surprised. Now just make sure that you bodily smell good so that they can actually smell the fragrance of Christ. Make sure that there are not other things that you are doing in your life that prevent them from smelling the fragrance of Jesus. And go, go into your lives expecting some to love the fragrance and be drawn to Jesus and assuming that there will be those who will want nothing to do with it whatsoever. It isn't strange. And so your reaction isn't for you to become unglued. Rather, your reaction is to remain calm and trusting and loving. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Oh, so there's something else going on there. My Heavenly Father loves me enough to test me in the midst of the suffering. Verse 19, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. 
So in, in the midst of all that, you just remind yourself on a day that God is sovereign. God is sovereign over the nations. God is sovereign over my life. God is so, sovereign over my sufferings. God is sovereign over all those things that are happening where people are rejecting me or pushing me away. God is sovereign over the church, friends. And in the midst of it all, he is, as Peter alludes to here, he is purifying his church. He is proving his people. He is testing our faith. God's judging, God's testing, God's purifying work begins with the household of God. Therefore, your suffering, while never pleasant, is of great, great worth. And then the third reaction that is to be different is we are to be unashamed. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Ashamed, apologetic, embarrassed. I mean, if you're suffering, get this, if you're suffering... If, if your suffering is because of your sin, then be ashamed. You're simply reaping the consequences of your foolish actions. If your suffering is because of your pride, if your suffering is because of your stubbornness, if you're suffering because of your lack of repentance, then it's okay to be ashamed. There is value for the Christian in being embarrassed for his or her actions, provided the embarrassment leads to repentance. And then you receive the grace of God and the forgiveness, and you walk away washed and clean. But before you get there, let God do his work through your embarrassment. There have been times in my life when I've been terribly embarrassed over my sins. And God has done his good work in my life. And then he washes it all away. Hebrews 12, God disciplines those he loves. What son is there whom his father does not discipline? But back to Peter, if, Peter says, if you're suffering as a Christian, in other words, if you're suffering as a result of seeking to be a follower of Jesus, don't ever be ashamed about that. Don't ever be ashamed of Christ or your allegiance to Christ. Jesus said in Mark 8, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The apostle Paul said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 2 Timothy 1, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Don't be ashamed of me, his prisoner. Don't be ashamed of other brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't be ashamed of men and women who are seeking to follow Jesus. Glory in them. But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. 2 Timothy 1, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. And so instead of being ashamed, what? Rejoice. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So you are sharing Christ's sufferings when you suffer as a Christian. Rejoice in that. Joseph Tsan was a Romanian pastor who resisted communist suppression of the church in the 1980s under Nikolai Ceausescu, <clears throat> and he wrote this at the time. This union with Christ is the most beautiful subject in the Christian life. It means that I am not a lone fighter here. No, I am an extension of Jesus Christ. When I was beaten in Romania, he suffered in my body. It is not my suffering. I only had the honor to share his sufferings. That's good. The opposite of being ashamed of being a Christian is being happy because of Christ. Confident and glad that you're a Christian. Rejoicing in the gospel. Rejoicing in the grace of God. Be glad now and be glad when his glory is revealed. And so all of that to say the way of the Christian is, is a, is a 
a radical way. It's a way of thinking and living and reacting that is very, very different than what you might have thought of when you first came to Christ. May the Lord equip us in such a way that even this week, I don't know what's going to happen in your lives this week. I don't know what's going on in your lives this week. I don't know what those relationships are where maybe you're already experiencing some of what Peter talks about here. May he equip us, may the Spirit of Christ equip us in such a way that we can live this way that will bring all the glory back to our Savior. Let's pray together. Would you take just a minute, please, and respond in your heart with your prayers and your praises to God in in some fashion that would be very personal for you. We thank you, Lord, for your calling upon our lives. We thank you for calling us to Christ. We thank you, Lord, for calling us to a new way of thinking, a new way of living, a new way of reacting to the world. We are in the world, but not of the world times, Lord, we do feel as if we are going up the down ramp. But I would pray for myself, for my family, for my church family. Lord, that we could fix our eyes on you. Watch the way you lived and the way you died. And believe that it is you living in us now. That we could be crucified to those things that dog at our heels. That we might walk in the newness of life. And Lord, that we could be a fragrance. You've said that we are. We are, we are a fragrance. A fragrance of God. For some of death to death, for others of life to life. We would pray even that this week that fragrance could be detected by those who know us. We love you, Lord. I pray for my brothers and sisters who in some fashion are suffering because of their faith even now. We pray for those in other parts of the world who suffer to a degree that we cannot begin to comprehend. We would pray for them today that you would be their strength their peace their joy their their sustenance you're a great God and Savior we give you praise and thanks in Jesus name God's people agreed by saying